The Vape Passion Show, episode 50. In this episode, we're going to talk about an interview with smokeless tobacco advocate Brad Rodu, why beginner vapers should watch Phil Bissardo in 2017, how to increase nicotine of your e-juice, and why you shouldn't charge your vape with a quick charge USB adapter. Welcome back to The Vape Passion Show. This is episode 50, and I'm recording the show on Sunday, January 7th, 2016. If you're planning on buying any vape products soon and you want to support what I do, go to vapepassion.com vendors and buy from one of those links. There are more than 50 popular vendors listed. I'll get a small commission for referring you, but it won't cost you anything extra. So I've been debating even doing the show because I've had a really bad cold for the last few days, but I think I'm coming to the end of the worst symptoms, so I decided to just go ahead with the show as planned, but you might notice a little stuffiness in my voice. Anyway, I hope you're all doing well this week. Um, we just got hit with a bunch of snow here in Colorado, which is always fun, but only when I don't have to drive in it. I also got a few things in the past few weeks uh, for review. Heavengifts.com, they actually really hooked me up, which is awesome. I really like those guys, they're so nice. But anyway, they sent me the Watofo Conqueror kit. So it's just a, a little tiny handheld mod and a, a tank to go with it, the Serpent Sub Tank. And it's 50 watts, it's a nice tank and device. And then they also sent me the iJoy XOS tank which is also a nice little tank, has pretty good flavor. And they also sent me the Watofo Conqueror Mini Tank, and uh, this thing is just really good. The, the flavor is amazing out of this thing. So I've been using all of this stuff nonstop since I got it, and all the tanks have, have really good flavor, but that Conqueror Mini, man, that thing is just a flavor chaser's dream. The flavor is so freaking good. It's like the original Conqueror tank, which also had amazing flavor. But the Mini is smaller, obviously, and has a different look and minor changes. But the deck is nearly identical. So yeah, I've got to get some reviews put together for those soon. Something else that I wanted to mention is that I want to start providing more information for beginners in these vlogs, or, or at least on my channel. Uh, I realized a few months ago that I wasn't really providing as much information to beginners as I feel that I should be. So I'm going to try to be more conscious of that as I put together the outlines for my shows or uh, other videos that I do. Uh, and that's actually why I've been buying beginner devices, like the Sync from Vape Forward, uh, the MyJet, the Jewel, which I actually just got yesterday, but I haven't opened yet, and the iCare. I was hoping to get reviews out for, for all of those before the smokers started their New Year's resolutions to quit smoking, but I just didn't have the time. But that's okay, I think the reviews will still be useful. I'll still be talking about advanced hobbyist topics that I really enjoy personally, but I do want to help beginners out whenever I can. Alright, so this week I'm drinking Velvet Merlin from Firestone Walker Brewing Company. It's a seasonal oatmeal stout with cocoa and espresso aromas. So I've already got it poured. This is a great stout and uh, one of my favorites. This one pairs well with flavors like oatmeal cookies, chocolate, and espresso or coffee. So I paired it with I Love Cookies from uh, Mad Hatter E-Juice. I Love Cookies is a cookie e-juice with hints of strawberry and caramel, but I don't taste that at all. To me, it tastes like straight up oatmeal cookies and that's why I picked it. Uh, I've already been vaping it and drinking this beer, and the combination is perfect. Uh, if you have Velvet Merlin, go get an oatmeal cookie vape and try it out. So I want to mention a comment that I received from George Gonzalez on my last vlog, and he thought it would be a good idea for me to do a video on DIY for beginners. This is actually an idea that has been running through my mind for a while now, and, but I never put a, a game plan together to do it. Um, well, after George's comment, I immediately started putting together an outline, and I realized that I have a lot to say on this topic. And I mean a lot. I don't think I can make it into a segment of the show because it's going to be so long. So I'll probably have to do a video series outside of this show. Or I could dedicate an entire show to it. I might do that. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. But thanks, George, for getting my button gear on this one. Now, hopefully I can find some time 
in the week to start recording. All right, so the first topic this week I wanna talk about is an interview with smokeless tobacco advocate, Brad Rodu. So Brent Stafford of Regulator Watch interviewed Brad Rodu, who is an oral and maxillofacial pathologist, which basically means that he's an expert in mouth cancer. He's also a professor of medicine at the University of Louisville. He has a blog at rodutobaccotruth.blogspot.com where he examines and talks about the misinterpretation of scientific research portrayed by the tobacco control groups and dispelling the misinformation that the public has about smokeless tobacco, mainly focusing on things like chewing tobacco, moist snuff, and snus but also about electronic cigarettes. So this all started when he began doing research into the potential harms of smokeless tobacco, and he found that it didn't seem to be as harmful as anti-tobacco made it seem. Then he started to publish his own research uh, in regards to the safety of smokeless tobacco. In 1998, he started a medical trial to test switching smokers to smokeless tobacco. The study was called a pilot study of smokeless tobacco in smoking cessation. And the conclusion was that the use of, to, of smokeless tobacco over the course of one year resulted in 25% of participants quitting smoking entirely and 7% reducing cigarette consumption by half. Now, as you can imagine, his colleagues didn't react well to this or to the things that he was saying about smokeless tobacco. The National Cancer Institute also claimed that his trial was unethical. Uh, he continues to receive hostility to his stance to this day from the medical community. But he doesn't let that stop him because his goal is to provide safer options for smokers. He has no other agenda. So he's been doing his research on smokeless tobacco for at least 35 years. And today he has come to the conclusion that smokeless tobacco is 98% safer than smoking. In the interview, Brent Stafford pointed out that this 98% number is similar to the 95% number that the vaping industry proclaims. And that's because just like with vaping, smokeless tobacco doesn't involve combustion. It delivers nicotine. So in regards to that 95% number in regards to vaping, Rodu says that he's not fond of that number being used as a specific number based on his stance of reviewing epidemiological evidence. But he still believes that vaping is vastly safer than smoking. He also says that there's no question that vaping should be an automatic option for people who are struggling to quit smoking. And something interesting that Rodu says is that he doesn't believe that smokers believe that smoking is an Ill illness, and neither does he, but that's how public health treats it. In his opinion, smokers don't need a treatment given to them by doctors who believe that smoking is a disease when the smokers themselves consider smoking to be a normal behavior. And this is probably why pharmaceuticals are not always the right option and why vaping has been so successful. He didn't say that, that's my words. Um, as to the war on vaping, Rodu says that there are two things happening. Anti-tobacco groups are collecting science that tends to be negative, and then they misuse the research to give smokers and vapors misinformation about vaping. And this is the same battle that he's been facing and has documented for 35 years in his fight for smokeless tobacco. The tobacco control advocates are using the same tricks against vaping. Concerning the FDA's stance on vaping, and if they will ever give pro-vaping research a chance, Rodu doesn't think that it will happen. Uh, there's just not enough of it. The FDA is not likely to ever fund someone in an American university who is relatively pro-vaping. Although there is a massive amount of money earmarked to research tobacco issues, the large percentage of grants will go to anti-tobacco research, which includes vaping. And he believes that we will soon see a torrent of research that will be very negative. He says that in the end, science is self-correcting, but it takes years or even decades, and we just don't have that time right now. Smokers need every option available to them to save their lives. Rodu also talked about his pessimism and worries about the vaping industry. Even with all of the positive research showing vaping as a viable tobacco harm reduction strategy, there's just simply too much information out there for people to learn the truth. Vaping has definitely energized the idea of harm reduction, 
but that has also created an enormous opposition. He sees tobacco control gaining momentum, which could possibly lead to vaping being either destroyed or being forced underground. In the interview, they also talked about the notion of vaping being a gateway to smoking, which is a common argument used by the CDC and other anti-e-cig supporters. But if you look at the data over the last four years, while e-cigarette experimentation has increased, cigarette use has declined in record numbers. There's simply no evidence that vaping is leading to smoking. Stanton Glantz, a big opponent of vaping and other anti-tobacco people, have heavily manipulated smaller data sets to give the impression that vaping is associated with increased smoking, but they're not showing causation in any way. So it was a short but great interview. I've been following Brad Rodu's blog for a couple of years now, and I'm a big fan of what he's doing. He mostly talks about smokeless tobacco, which I find really interesting. I don't use it myself, but until I read his research, I was under the same impression that most people are, that chew causes cancer. But if you read any of the research on his blog, you'll learn that there actually is no scientific basis for claims of smokeless tobacco causing mouth cancer or gum disease. And I know that might sound surprising to you, but that's because health professionals and the media have fed this to us our entire lives. And just think about the stigma that vaping is facing in the media right now. It's the same thing. But 30 years ago, smokeless tobacco didn't have the support that vaping has today. But their fight isn't over yet, and ours is just beginning, and we have an army of passionate and devoted advocates. Okay, so sticking with my new goal of trying to provide more helpful information to beginners, I want to talk about why beginner vapers should watch Phil Bissardo in 2017. In a recent episode of Smoke Free Radio with Dimitris, uh, Dimitris was joined by Phil Bissardo, and they were talking about the importance of putting more focus on smokers who are new to vaping. Now, Phil has always kind of focused on doing reviews for beginner-type products anyway, because he likes to vape high nicotine on mouth-to-lung devices, and it naturally helps beginners. He mentioned that he receives a lot of comments on these reviews from people who tell him that vaping has evolved and that he needs to adapt with the changes. On Dimitri's show, he said that it's true, vaping has evolved, but you know what hasn't evolved? Smoking. And what a mind-blowing comment that was. That one really stuck with me. Because smokers are the people who need to know about mouth-to-lung tanks and affordable products, and they're the most important audience. And sure, hobbyists are important too, but hobbyists already know about the benefits of vaping. Smokers don't. So Phil mentioned that moving forward, he's going to put a lot more focus on affordable, mouth-to-lung, tight-drop, beginner products, even though that these products aren't very popular on YouTube. Now first, I think Phil is wrong about these products not being popular. I've done a couple of reviews for basic beginner devices, and they are some of my most popular videos. And I think it's because the people who watch them are trying to learn everything they can about getting into vaping. And it makes sense. There are many more smokers and beginner vapers out there than there are hobbyists. They might not share vape videos on social media or forums. They might not leave any comments on videos, but they're definitely watching them and learning. And secondly, I think it's awesome that Phil is putting more focus on beginner devices at the risk of losing views and subscribers, even though I don't believe that he will. But nonetheless, it's pretty clear that he does what he does for the right reasons. So if you know a smoker who is considering vaping, point them to Phil's channel uh, or his website, tasteyourjuice.com. Although his videos are extremely long, he has a lot of great content, and he's also very a very likable person, and he's enjoyable to watch. All right, moving on to the next topic, how to increase the nicotine of your e-juice. So if you have a bottle of e-juice that doesn't have enough nicotine, I came across this great formula for figuring out how much nicotine to add. Just to clarify, this isn't for adding nicotine to a zero milligram e-juice. This is for adding nicotine to an e-juice that already has nicotine in it. So this would be useful for people who somehow end up with a bottle of e-juice that isn't strong enough for them. For example, uh, something handed down to them or uh, when when you buy an e-juice on sale, for for example, and and your choice of nicotine strength isn't in stock. Now in my case, I want to do this so that I can use the e-juice that I already own in devices that are designed for higher nicotine strengths, like the iCare or the the MyJet. So most of my e-juice is six milligrams nicotine, but in those 
types of devices, six milligrams is just not enough. I need something like 18 or 24. So I want to increase the nicotine strength to 18 milligrams for my MyJet vape, for example. So I'm going to use that example moving forward. So let's get onto the formula. So if you're listening to the podcast, you might want to go check out the video, my video on YouTube, because it'll make more sense. It'll be easier to follow the formula, but I'll run through it anyway. So the formula goes like this, volume times final strength minus original strength divided by the strength of the nicotine you're adding minus the final strength you're trying to reach. So using my MyJet pod as an example, which is 1.2 milliliters, I just want to add some nicotine to that. So my formula would be 1.2 milliliters times 18, which is my target strength, minus 6, which is the strength of the e-juice that I already own, divided by 100, which is the, the nicotine strength of the nicotine that I'm adding, minus 18, again, my target strength. And that leaves me with 14.4 divided by 82, and that equals 0.175 milliliters, or 0.175 grams. That's how much nicotine I need to add to my to 1.2 milliliters of e-juice to make it 18 milligrams nicotine. So if you suck at math like I do, this might sound confusing at first, but after you run through the process, it all makes sense and it's easy to do. The conversion to milliliters to grams is generally the same if you're using PG-based nicotine. So in this case, it would be 0.175 grams of nicotine. But if you're using VG-based nicotine, it has a a slightly different weight. Um, I use the calculator from eliquidrecipes.com Uh, filled in all of my values, then adjusted the target nicotine until I got to that 0.175 milliliters, which calculated 0.21 grams of 100 milligram nicotine. So that's how you can do it if you want to do it by weight. All right, enough math. Um, Let's get into the next topic. Don't charge your vape with a quick charge 2.0 charger. So I came across this post on Reddit warning people not to charge their devices using a phone charger USB adapter uh, that's designed for fast charging phones. He provided some examples, such as adapters with Qualcomm Quick Charge 2.0 or 3.0 ratings, Samsung adaptive fast charging adapters, Motorola turbo chargers, or any other adapters labeled as Rapid. This one particularly caught my interest because the same day I read this, I actually just charged my iStick 50W and Watofo Serpent Box on my Samsung fast charge adapter. I didn't even think about it. Now the way these fast charge adapters work is that they they sense the device that's connected to it. If the device supports quick charge, the charger will then push the amount of voltage that the device allows, which would be 9 volts, 12 volts, or even 20 volts, while the normal voltage of a USB adapter is 5 volts. Theoretically, your adapter shouldn't switch into a higher voltage if the device you're charging doesn't accept it, but there's always a chance that some sort of failure could happen, either in the charger or in the connected device. If you're not sure if the USB adapter that you're using is a fast charging adapter, look at the label where the electrical prongs are If there are multiple voltage output settings, it's a fast charging adapter. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'll show you a picture of my adapter so you can see. And as you can see on my adapter, it shows two different outputs, five volt or nine volts. That's one way you can tell. The person who posted this information on Reddit mentioned that he has already seen three cases of the Smoke Alien mod being damaged after charging on a fast charge adapter. There were also some comments within that thread confirming that the Samsung cable has damaged a cuboid and a Motorola Qualcomm 2 charger caught an RDNA 40 on fire. So this is definitely a good reason to avoid using fast chargers entirely for any device. It's just not worth the risk. If for some reason you do want to continue using a fast charge USB adapter, 
One way you can pr protect yourself is by using a USB cable that only allows for charging and does not accept data. If the cable doesn't send data, it will not be able to notify the charger to switch voltage. You can also buy a, uh, something called a USB condom for about $5, which blocks the data pins on the USB cable from sending data. Okay, so that's all I have for this week. It's a bit of a short show. You'll find the show notes for this episode on vapepassion.com. Just do a search for episode 50. If you want to support the show, consider donating to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash vapepassion. You can follow me on Twitter at vapepassion. I'm also on Facebook if you want to leave me a comment. If you like the show, I'd love it if you gave me a review on iTunes, and you can also catch my show on YouTube. If you want to be notified of new reviews or the show, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on vapepassion.com. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me anytime at alex at vapepassion.com. All right, I'll see you next week.